came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about and said to the crowd, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Really? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Being that it's uh, Super Bowl Sunday, I felt like it was appropriate not to so much talk about Super Bowl, but to talk about DeMar Miller, uh, DeMar Hamlin, who plays for the Buffalo Bills. I don't know if you've seen his story, if you're some into sports at all, you may have picked this up over the last month, but uh, the Buffalo Bills were playing Cincinnati Bengals back on January the 2nd as they were marching through these divisional playoffs. And in one play in the first quarter, he hit one of the uh, running backs that was coming through and uh, hit him, landed on the ground, stood up, and immediately fell over. And it didn't take very much time for all the EMTs and people to get out there, but he had literally, his heart had stopped. And he died right on the playing field. It's interesting to see multi-million dollar football players who are played all kinds of money stand around helplessly trying to figure out what we do and what's going to happen. There's something about that event that caught the whole world, if you're watching it at all. Uh, I, it's amazing in a, in a world where prayer can be whatever you want and probably ignored by most people, how much prayer came to the forefront of this whole thing. Players were kneeling down and praying for him. Uh, I, I think one of the remarkable things that I saw in all of that as uh, actually a couple of days later was uh, Dan uh, Orlovsky, who is a, uh, an analysis with ESPN. Uh, he was actually live on TV and he said, you know, I'm hearing everybody talk about prayer and that we're praying for him. Uh, the Buffalo, uh, the Bills have said they believe in prayer. Everybody says they believe in prayer. I wanna pray. And so right there you know, in live TV show, he prayed out loud whether he, you know, he says, I don't know if this is the right thing to do or not. And he obviously wasn't concerned about the right thing to do, but whether he could pull this off on live TV. And he prayed for DeMar Hamlin. And the two people that were sitting with him just, yeah, go for it. And they said amen and then moved on. You know, it's amazing how when you get down to the nitty gritty of life and death issues, how everybody turns to someone other than themselves to try to respond to how, how do we fix this? How do we respond to this? What's amazing is that that kind of crisis made the, the football game obsolete. They, in fact, canceled the game for the rest of the night, and uh, that was just the end of it because one person's life was far more important than who won the football game. You know, I, I think about that as I've looked over the last uh, couple of months and as they play the Super Bowl today, one of the things that's been fun to, to listen to is when they had the NFL honors this last week, they invited DeMar Hamlin to come on there and they celebrated the EMTs and the surgeons and the doctors who basically saved his life. 
the other remarkable miracle that really went on there is that when he wasn't breathing, his heart wasn't working for minutes, several minutes, uh, that he didn't have any brain damage. And they actually invited him. He came out at the NFL Honors and thanked everybody. It was really emotional. It was quite something, because he seems to be a really neat Christian guy who gave the honor and glory to the Lord, thanked the people that had rescued and saved his life. You know, sometimes we need perspectives like that. It's so easy to get caught into our own little space and our own little world doing our own stuff and we get irritated at people who bother us and won't cooperate. We get into road rage at times because people cut us off. And when you get back to something like life and death issues, all of a sudden that stuff should disappear, at least for normal human beings. But it also raises some questions about just who is God and where is God in all this? Why is it that God, if he really loves us, allows this kind of stuff to happen? And in some respects, as we look at this particular text, we discover, uh, I want to suggest to you, and you might panic at this a little bit, but I want to just highlight nine principles of faith as you simply look at this woman's story in relationship to her getting healed in her own situation. For hers, it may not be life and death, but it's pretty close. Uh, If you live with any kind of suffering, that's debilitating, uh, sometimes you're dealing with life and death thoughts all the time. Uh, If you don't have much pain in your life, this may not resonate with you very much, but I'm hoping that by the time we're finished, I can challenge you to what your faith really looks like. Because it's easy to call ourselves Christians, it's a whole different thing that we're gonna live like Christians. And so as we begin on this one, I want you to notice that In many ways, the very first principle that I want to deal with is one of the best opportunities for faith is when people have exhausted every human effort to solve their own issues. My uh, wife and I watched on live stream a funeral for a very good friend of ours that we'd known for probably 40 years or almost 50 years, uh, who passed away. She was a lady that was a musician. She was a fantastic pianist. She taught in colleges and did uh, church hi- uh, music history and all those kinds of things. And she was a loving, caring, hospitable woman who really lived her life out for the Lord in so many ways. And, and in, as I was thinking about that issue, it's always been one of those questions as to, what do you say at a funeral? What do you say when someone loses a loved one? Now, if you have a kind of faith that treats your faith like a religion, like every other religion, there's times when people face crisis that we don't know what to say and we don't know how to move alongside them and we don't want to bring up religious stuff because they're hurting and we don't want to seem insensitive. And yet, I was so thankful to hear her kids and her family talk so much about their faith in Christ and offer it as the solution to people that didn't know Jesus. And I want to, at the front end of this, say to you that when people face crisis in their life, that is the one time that if there's any opportunity for the opportunity for faith and hope and salvation, it's in those times of crisis. And we shouldn't be afraid to step alongside people who are filing deep crisis, not just to be there, but to offer the hope of the gospel. Now, obviously, that takes some wisdom and it takes some tact, but there's reasons for why we face these things. We live in a life and death culture, 
We live in a life and death world, and there's reasons for it. And when people have crisis in their life, it is one of the best opportunities in the world for us to step alongside and offer hope. The question is, because we're so afraid we don't know what to say, we often avoid those things. We often step aside. We say perfunctory things that are meant to say, I'm thinking about you, that we can say that we're praying for them, but like Dan Orlovsky, sometimes we need to step in and actually pray. One of the things that I would suggest to you in terms of this woman's experience with Jesus is if you were thinking about principles, the second one is that one of the most important reasons for the existence of pain, suffering, and even death is that God uses these to remind us that something is terribly wrong with this world and ourselves. I, I don't know about you, but we have to keep reminding ourselves that when God created heaven and earth, it was perfect. Everything that God created was according to exactly his design. So he created the stars and the moons and the universe and the waters and the plants and the animals and culminated the whole thing with creating humanity in his image. And it was perfect. But God had some conditions. Because he wanted the free will choice of Adam and Eve to walk in fellowship with him and love and obey him, He gave them choices, and they decided to spit in his face and say, yeah, we know that you told us not to do this, but we're persuaded now that we want to do things ours. So they developed a bit of a God complex, and they ate of the fruit that God said not to eat. And what happens from that seems pretty innocent, and yet the ramifications are absolutely universal and they're eternal. That they threw all of creation and everyone in it under a bus. And so we're told in Romans 5 and other places that pain, sin, suffering, corruption, all this stuff, even death, is a result of their disobedience. So now all of humanity, as much value as we have because we're created in the image of God and have immeasurable value as human beings, we're not good anymore. We don't have the capacity to to earn our way back to God and say, look, I've Here's my resume. I I think I've done and been good enough where I think I should get to heaven. We are not basically good, and we're not basically good enough to get back to heaven. So we are in this world of corruption where we have value, and compared to one another, we can do good things. Thank the Lord for the image of his image in us to be able to do that. But it will never be sufficient to earn our way to a better place when we die. And so at the, the heart of this, we discover that the, the complaint that people say is, well, why in the world, if God really loved us, would he allow all this pain and suffering and these problems in the world? I've got news for you. We brought it on ourselves. We are the ones that are responsible. And you say, well, I, that wasn't me. That was Adam and Eve. Kind of like you're related to them, so you've got to live with it. But the issue is, not only are we victims because we've inherited all the corruption that that they committed and they passed on, but we do our own form of rebellion towards God. I mean, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind, and on our own, nobody does that. And they certainly don't do it perfectly. Well, then the arguments usually go, well, I think I'm basically good, I'm trying. But trying isn't gonna get you right with God. And so at the, at the heart of this, we discover that God can use things that we brought upon ourselves. Pain, suffering, agony, disease, all that is a consequence and a result of that. 
You might say, well, Brad, that seems like an extreme punishment, as it were, over a simple disobedience over eating whatever, pineapple, apple, pear, avocado, whatever you think it was, it doesn't really matter. The point is they disobeyed God. When we were raising our kids, and they got old enough to ramble around the house and reach the countertops, we would make sure that the elements on the stove were off, because if they were on and we were cooking something, don't touch them, because you're gonna get burnt. And of course, the moment you say don't touch it, then you've got some real brilliant kids that'll go, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. And there's been an occasion where we've had to you know, take them to the doctor or get all the sob and whatever we can because they've got really scorched, burned fingers. We have to remember that's exactly what God said to Adam and Eve. Look, if you disobey me, you're gonna get burnt. And you have no idea how extensive and how deep and wide that's gonna affect your life. Don't do it because you're gonna get burnt. And they went and did it, they went and did it anyway. And, and the loving thing that God does, that in spite of the fact that we deserve his judgment, in light of the fact that we disobeyed him, is that he loves us so much that he sent his son to rescue us. And, and Christ's presence on earth shows a God of extreme love and compassion and mercy to a, a, a humanity that doesn't deserve it. And so the principle is pretty clear, that one of the most important reasons for God allowing things like pain and suffering and death and all these things is, is to continue to communicate us that this world isn't right and more importantly, we're not right. And the only way to restore that is going to be through our belief and faith in Christ. Third principle is that the woman's belief was centered on a person. It was centered on the person of Jesus. Now, you're gonna run into lots of religions who will include Jesus in their framework and in their religious system, but they don't see him as God, they see him as a prophet. They might see him as a good teacher, but they don't see him as the only begotten of the Father. And so how you frame Jesus and what you believe about him makes a big difference as to whether you can put faith in him. At the heartbeat of this, her belief was that in Jesus something could happen. The idea of belief is something where we can have complete confidence and trust. And we've put our trust in a lot of things that have let us down in life. We all know that. Whether it's friends or family or circumstances or promises, we are used to being let down. Even though there's all kinds of things where people will keep their word. But we know what it's like. But the other principle, number four, is that the woman's faith was centered on the promise or the hope. And I want to spend a moment on this because I think of Romans chapter 4 where it talks about Abraham's faith. Remember when God came to them, he said, well, no, I, you're not going to just inherit, you know, adopt a child and they're going to be the heirs. This child's going to come from your own body. Well, when you're close to 100 years old, that sounds a little difficult. It's a little tricky. But the statement here says, no unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now it's easy to say I believe in God. It's easy to say I believed in Jesus. It's easy to make those claims. The other is, the question is, do we have the kind of belief in who God is that he will always keep his promises? 
that he will do and has the capacity to do what he said. Now, I want to make a distinction between belief and faith, not as a theological distinction, but a practical one, mostly because I found it helpful for me to think about it this way. Because there's two elements of this idea of belief and faith, at least in, uh, as I see in the scriptures, I just read about it. The, the reason for that is that I look at belief a lot as centering in the source or the person. When the woman heard about the stories of Jesus, she, that suddenly caught her attention. And people were telling all these stories about this person named Jesus going around and he was actively healing and casting out demons. And the more stories I suspect she heard, the more she's going like, wow, maybe this is true. But the story was, out, was of a particular person. Now obviously some of this is inseparable. Both these were English words that we use come from exactly the same Greek word. So you can't make a super hard distinction because as soon as you do, you can find an exception to what I'm saying. But there's something she had to believe about Jesus himself. And so then the issue from there is that now she's going, well, if he can really do that, maybe he can do it for me. She saw how he could make a difference for her. And so this is where faith comes in. If faith is in the promise that he can heal people, it has to be centered in a certain person, so now she goes seeking after that person. But she can only appropriate, believing hasn't changed her life at this point. All it does is convince her that Jesus has a solution that she cannot find and no one else has been able to find for her. So to some degree, her belief hasn't changed anything. But as she's chased after Jesus, it's because the confidence is that he has the capacity to make a difference in her life. And the conviction for her is that if she just reaches out and touches his garment, she'll be healed. Now, why that? I mean, this is where Christianity and current day life over the last 30 years have created all kinds of things. I've mentioned this before, garments and handkerchiefs and things. If you buy these for 20 bucks, it'll heal you and all this kind of stuff, which I'm not afraid to say I'm not, a fa not in favor. Because we start taking little icons and formulizing them and then making money off people for things that I don't think what the scripture's teaching. But what she discovered is that if she really believed that Jesus could make a difference, she was gonna go seek him out. It was not a belief from afar, but it, there's texts that reinforce what she did. Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And notice the difference between faith and belief here. For, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. They have to believe that he's a real person, as it were. God is not a concept or a theological idea. He is a sovereign, omnipotent, sovereign being who's responsible as the first cause of everything that exists. And I, as a side note, I want to say, I think one of the biggest struggles in our walk with God in it with Christ is treating God like a person, not a concept. I mean, the, the pathway to religion is treating God like an idea, not a real person we have a relationship with. But the, but the challenge here now is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seeing. And so she understood something about Jesus. She began to believe and have confidence in that, and that moved her to, to a faith action, which now says, I've got to go find him. Now the problem with having an issue of blood or a hemorrhage like this is that she's socially unclean. It's most likely it would come closest to some of the texts in the Old Testament that talk about when women have children, they have a hemorrhage and they need to, they're unclean for a certain number of days and 
that needs to pass before they can get back into public. So she is socially ostracized, not because she had children, but she's got a permanent problem that can't get solved. So for her to even approach anybody this way would probably seem irresponsible and inappropriate. So she's not going to go and, hey, Jesus, look at me. She's a woman in a culture where that probably wouldn't go over well. And she's socially unclean, so that wouldn't fly. So there's a, Jesus is heading clearly away from her. There's this crowd pushing in around Jesus, and she's kind of wheeling her way up through the crowd. She, excuse me, excuse me, you know, she's kind of moving through and she's kind of wigwound through there and she goes, the best chance I have is if I can just grab onto his cloak, maybe something will happen. And so she sneaks up there and she touches his garment all of a sudden she goes, oh man, something happened. And so all of a sudden she's going like, oh, no. it's, you know, you ever do something and you sort of go, oh, I hope this happened, then it happens, it's like, oh, nuts, now what do I do with this? You know, I didn't expect that to happen, but she touches it, all of a sudden she feels something radically change inside of her, and she's going like, oh, nuts, I'm in, I think I'm in trouble. So she starts backing away, and Jesus stops and goes, who touched me? What I, the, the, the fifth principle here that I want to highlight to you is that genuine, what we would call biblical faith, is never blind faith. Deal with this all the time with people. Well, if you want to blindly believe in that, you go ahead, but there's no real evidence for the idea of biblical faith. Usually the question I bring up is I said, well, do you believe in what we would call Darwinian evolution? Because if you want blind faith, boy, that champions everything. There's no scientific evidence that validates any of that. It's just people doing science now extrapolating their own theories without God back to trying to explain what happened because they have no idea how to explain it. I don't know how many trillions or billions of years we're up to for all this random sort of globs of glue to actually form human beings, but I still don't think they have enough time there. I don't know the language of time to be able to figure out how much time they'd actually need for random acts of unintelligent, random accidents to produce something as complex and sentient as us. And so in, in the heart of this, it isn't blind faith, why? Because she had heard stories about Jesus. She had something to go by. She had her testimonies from people and a number of people. So it's not just random blind faith. She's already believing in something that other people are giving testimony. So then she moves by faith to touch his garment. And I want to encourage us to remind ourselves that, that biblical faith trusting in Jesus is not blind faith. There's so much evidence about the reality of our existence and the planets and life itself that it screams that there's a personal being. So you never have to apologize or allow some person to try to shut you down by suggesting, well, I don't need this religious crutch to make my life make sense. Man, I love it when people do that. I'll go after that like a lion hunting deer. It usually doesn't last very long because it's like, okay, well, then tell me what you believe. How do you think we all got here? And most people have no idea, so they usually default to evolution, and then it's like shooting ducks in a pond from there. The, the idea here is not to put people in their place, but we have to discover how to give people hope through the gospel. 
And so biblical faith is never blind faith, even for this woman. She had heard the stories and she was convinced about the reality. Now she's checking it out for herself, not just sort of spinning, well, wouldn't it be cool? She's actually taking action. And that's the reality that faith is. You can believe whatever you want if it never changes my actions or motivates me to act in such a way. It's basically useless. Remember, her belief in who Jesus was hadn't changed anything. Her faith to touch his garment is what changed everything. The sixth principle is very similar. It's kind of redundant here, but this woman's faith touching Jesus' garment validated that she believed, what she believed about Jesus and the stories. And it reminds me of the reality that actions often speak louder than words. You know, it's, it's easy for Christians to say, yeah, I believe in the gospel. Well, if we believe in the gospel, who are you sharing it with? Who are you, who are you building relationship with so that you can share the hope of Jesus or, or to travel in someone's journey so that when crisis happens, you can say, listen, have you ever considered the reality of what God offers to you? I mean, isn't, isn't that one of the great dilemmas for us? Yeah, we all believe in the gospel, but there's very few people who often end up sharing the gospel with people. How, how does that disconnect happen in our hearts? How, how do we get to the point where what we believe in is a compelling motivation to care enough about people to say, listen, I know you're going through crisis, but there is hope. Clearly, we need wisdom and compassion and sensitivity in doing that. But I tell you, I've never been to a funeral where I haven't shared the gospel. I don't care whether the person was a Christian or not. Why? Because people need hope. Now, one caveat to that. When Job was going through his sufferings, he had three great friends who came and hung out with him because he was suffering so badly, seemed to be alienated from everybody else. And I'll tell you, those guys were absolutely exceptional for the first seven days. Then they opened their mouth. And sometimes the problem isn't that they need hope, it's how we go about communicating it. So there's clearly a sense of wisdom and insight and compassion. But the seventh principle I want you to note here is that faith with humility is powerful. Soon as Jesus stops and says, who touched me? I think she starts to panic. Well, basically says that in the text. Because she suddenly knows, oh no, he knows it was me. Of course the disciples, they're doing the normal stuff. <laughs> really? <laughs> like someone touched you? You're kidding, right? You got enough people bouncing on you and pushing you that like, how the, what is that supposed to mean? Like, and Jesus says, well, hang on. I felt power go out from, from my being. Someone touched me differently than what everything, all these other curious people that are bouncing around want to go see a fantastic miracle. Somebody touched me in a different way. And he stops, which probably drove Jairus right off the deep end, but Jesus stops, and all of a sudden she goes, oh man. And, and she isn't celebrating, she comes and you, you'll notice the text, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. It's interesting that her posture is very similar to the man who was demonized. That when he saw Jesus, he came and fell down before him kind of thing. 
It's the same response when Revelation chapter one, when John sees this glorious, exalted, resurrected Jesus in all of his power and his glory and his majesty, what does he do? He falls down like a dead man in front of Jesus. And the picture that I get here is a woman who suddenly panics because she's found out I've taken advantage of Jesus' power. She might even go, I didn't even ask permission. I just like snuck in there and grabbed it. And now all of a sudden I'm found out, so she comes with incredible humility and it says, told her the whole truth. And I suspect what she did is she goes, listen, she probably told him the whole story. I've had this problem for like 13 years and I've seen physicians and my body's been ravaged by this problem and I feel like a disease, I've been ostracized, I don't fit in any kind of community. Life is absolutely miserable and I'm in pain all the time and I, the, I've paid all my money to these physicians that are supposed to help me and I'm just like, I'm broke and I'm worse than I ever was. The woman did not come to Jesus making demands. You ever run into people like that? They're people that think they have faith so they start trying to tell God what he's gonna do. They start dictating to Jesus what he should do and not do. They start sometimes claiming authority that, but what I love about this woman is she is the perfect picture of faith and humility and she comes and snags some power from Jesus and finds healing but then she comes forth and says, this is why I did it. Complete transparency, this is my story. She has no idea what Jesus is gonna do, but I wanna encourage you that our belief in God and our faith in Jesus, coupled with humility, can be one of the most powerful forces in our own life and in the life of someone else. I get a little tired at times with people who think they've mastered certain aspects of the Christian life and then they're gonna tell everybody else what they need to do. She doesn't make demands. She wasn't trying to control or manipulate Jesus. She was trying to hide and be out of sight because she felt like she did something inappropriately. And Jesus comes to her and says, daughter, which is an interesting term, likely meaning a daughter of Israel, he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. I, I always thought Jesus would say that differently. Obviously, he's the one that made her well, but it's interesting that he said, your faith has made you well. And I sit back from that and I go, man, what a profound statement. Wouldn't you love for Jesus to show up here? And he comes up to you and he says, listen, that faith step that you took there, that's what changed things. That's what altered that person's life because you were taking that faith step. Your faith has changed something. Now we would do, well, wait a minute, Jesus. We know that it wasn't me. It was, you're doing it all the time, and so it's not about me. Jesus goes, now wait a minute. Your faith made you well. Your faith changed things. And while it seems like the humble thing that we wanna make sure that we don't take credit for things and we're not trying to rob God of his glory, there is an element where Jesus affirms the reality that for people who understand and believe in him powerfully and understand the crisis of the moment 
can step out in faith, and that faith can change things. And when we get to chapter 6, we're going to contrast it with the idea that Jesus was unable to do a number of miracles in a certain place because of the depth of their unbelief. And I, I believe that God could use an army of people who have this kind of faith. There's something about realizing the finiteness and the vulnerability of our own life who believes so strongly in Jesus she was willing to risk everything, even doing something inappropriate, just to touch his cloak so that she might be healed. Some of us probably say, well, that's kind of selfish, don't you think? I don't know, I, I would suggest to you that the whole reason God sent his son and that he was crucified and butchered on a cross and died and rose on the third day is because you and I need something, desperately. And the people around you that you know that don't know Christ desperately need something. We don't need to sell them anything, they need to be given something, and I suspect at times God is just waiting for an individual to say, I have this kind of faith that I'm gonna step out there and, and if I'm an introvert, so I don't create conversations, but I'm gonna do it anyway, just in case. Because faith with humility in the gospel of Jesus Christ can change everything. And what I'm often afraid of is that we get into kind of a cultural Christianity where we have our routines and get up in the morning, read my Bible and do this and that kind of stuff and I go through the week and I haven't touched anyone's life and I, haven't, I can't tell you anything that God has done in my life because it's just been a normal week. But the same thing that Jesus said to her, I want to just sort of springboard off it, not that it's saying the same thing, but we need to realize the desperation of our own spiritual condition. If God could peel that off, we'd probably be in full-fledged panic. Because we don't often appreciate or value the desperate situation that unsaved people are in. Oh, we of course don't believe that they could have a heart attack and peel over tomorrow on things because that's not the, we know life's just gonna keep on going. And so, I have all these kinds of reasons why I can't have these discussions with people that don't know Jesus. But they can be healed because if they come to the realization and they can believe in who God is, they can put faith in Christ and they can be healed from the disease of sin and the separation that we have from God. Because no matter how much God may heal our body or our outward circumstances, you don't want to gain the entire world and then lose or forfeit your soul. And I am convinced that I would love to have this woman's faith. You know, I want to just finish with this. I, I find it fascinating among all the things that are fascinating in this particular text, of which I would love to explore, but we don't have time to do it this morning. 
that all these people want to go see Jesus do another miracle. This is the coolest thing I've ever said. This would make my week to see something like this. And they're bumping into Jesus and pushing the disciples to test to it. It's kind of like, what are you nuts? You got all these people pushing and banging on you all over the place and you're asking, who touched me? Here's my, here's my concern. We bump into Jesus all the time, every week, maybe even every day. Pick up our Bibles on Monday and we do our devotions. We might spend some time in prayer. We listen to a podcast, participate in a ministry. We're, we're an awful lot like the crowds that are bumping into Jesus all the time. But none of those people experience the life-changing power of Jesus the way the woman did. And the, and the concern that kind of ran up my head is like, how many times have I bumped into Jesus all week long, memorizing verses, maybe praying, reading some devotional, reading the scriptures, participating in ministry, preparing for Sunday, and yet I can't talk about the power, the life-changing power of Jesus and what he's doing in my life because I really don't need him. I want to see him do some cool things, but I'm too busy wanting to see him do cool things rather than him do cool things in me. You ever caught, had weeks that way? Just kind of got through the week and can't remember what the lesson was last week or what the small group agreed to or the verse you memorized is gone. See, I think, I think the danger is that we can bump into Jesus all the time, but what we need is people who can say, I've been touched by the power of Jesus. And sometimes I think the problem is we don't see our lives with this desperate need to walk intimately with Jesus so much that we wouldn't say he's doing miracles in our life every day, but we want to be touched by the power of Christ. So he's healing our heart and our spirit of wounds that we've carried along, the clutter that comes from making bad choices, from the comments that our family or siblings made or our parents made to us way back when and we've never dealt with it. Sometimes the reason why we can't move alongside other people and have the kind of faith that can change the direction of their life because we have the courage and the humility to believe that God might do something, even spontaneously, when we're not expecting it. It's because we keep bumping into Jesus every day, every week, and, and yet I can't talk about anything that is really life-changing. God forbid that we turn our, relig- our Christianity into a week-to-week moral religion that doesn't really make a difference. Charles Templeton was a close friend of Billy Graham. In fact, when they first started back in the 1940s, they preached together. But somewhere in there, Templeton started having a lot of mental questions and doubts. And he couldn't shake it. He questioned the truth of Scripture and other core Christian beliefs. He finally abandoned his faith and made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade Billy Graham to do the same thing. His statement is he felt sorry for Billy, saying he committed intellectual suicide by choosing, uh, by choosing clo- or closing his mind. Templeton resigned from the ministry and became a novelist and a news commentator. He also wrote the critique of the Christian faith titled, Farewell to God, My Reason for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Now, 
I'm sure it's in its infancy, but I suspect that he bumped into Jesus a lot. But it didn't really make any difference, did it? When he was 83 years old and suffering from Alzheimer's, he was being interviewed and he was giving explanations why he abandoned his faith. And he said this, I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and the indiscriminate killing more often than that, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there's a deity who loves us. Because what he began to believe about God was completely inconsistent with what I read in Genesis 1 and 2. And when you stop believing in that God, then your faith goes right out the window. And I think we can say the same thing. We can have people growing up in the church and bumping into Jesus all the time, but the key is, are they experiencing the power of Christ to change life? Are we able to cultivate within the schemes of our regular schedules in life, not just a belief in God, but a living faith that transforms the way we live? That's the power of faith. But it's also the danger of those who don't really believe. What are you personally doing that keeps fueling your desire for God and intimacy with Christ? In this busy, hectic world, it'd be easy for any of us to go back and say, wow, you know, not much is happening. It's kind of life and death for us, isn't it? The world will suck all the life out of us if they can do it. They'll crush our faith if we give them an inch. But I think what God wants is men and women who have a faith that is shrouded so much with humility that Jesus looks back on us and said, your faith made a difference. I know I want to become that kind of person. Father, we thank you. Boy, for this maybe shy, reserved, ostracized lady who just took an extraordinarily different track than everybody else in the crowd. She had a deep personal need, and maybe that's the starting point for all of us, is to realize the stark, eternal, desperate need that we have for Jesus. For hers, it was some physical healing, but it's extraordinary that Jesus referred to her as a daughter, likely of Israel, and said, go in peace. I'm reminded that the gospel can heal us of our spiritual wounds and our separateness from you. We can have peace with you that keeps us from having to strive and try to prove our sense of self-worth and significance. Father, I personally challenged that I want a faith like this woman. So extraordinary that she experienced the spontaneous, as it were, work of the power of Christ in her life. And she had a story, not just about believing Jesus and hearing stories, but a personal testimony of being radically changed by the power and the touch of the Savior. Help us, Lord not to just bump into Jesus all week, but 
discover the power of Christ to change us and to live with the kind of faith that can help change others. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.